Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I think last night, the entire country was watching very carefully and listening even more closely to what was going on at the arena in Kingston as Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip did what many would consider the near impossible, uh, given what we found out about uh, Gord Downey's health just a few months ago, and that is to conclude what had been a Canada-wide tour. He shared with us publicly the news of... Um, terminal brain cancer. And we've all learned that the type of cancer afflicting Gord Downey is very aggressive in the treatments, the surgery, the radiation, the chemotherapy. They're all tremendously difficult on the body. If you've experienced cancer and cancer treatments personally, and there'll be many people listening to this program right now who have done exactly that, who've been through it, who are going through it now, or if you know someone who has, then you know well the physically and emotionally draining reality of the illness and the treatments. And to set a concert schedule would have been a major challenge, the travel, the logistics, the carrying through on days and times of the performances. You know, I'm sure for young people with no health issues, a music tour is tiring. For Gord Downey and his friends who make up the band, it must have been at times overwhelming. The love received from the fans, you know, that had to be just so energizing. If you were watching last night, then you know. But as I watched last night, and the fans kept roaring their appreciation... And the hip came back for three encores. I got to worrying about how tiring that would have to be for Gord Downey. And I tweeted last night that I never thought I'd witness an iconic Canadian moment to rival Foster Hewitt. Was it Foster Hewitt? God, I can't remember now. I think it was Foster Hewitt. Um, or maybe his son. <laughs> Screaming into the microphone somewhere in the Luzhniki Sports Palace in Moscow in 1972. Henderson, he takes another stab at it. He shoots, he scores. I don't remember the exact words. But last night, I witnessed an iconic Canadian moment to match, I thought, Paul Henderson's game-winning goal in Game 8, series-winning goal in Game 8 of the Summit Series on Ice in 1972. It was a goal which had Canada on its collective feet shouting and hugging anybody nearby. So that iconic moment last night was Gord Downey coming back onto the stage and saying, we're in uncharted territory now, referring to the uh, third encore. Let's have a listen to 1972. Play that, please, Heather. Henderson made a wild stab for spell. Here's another shot. Fight by the score! Henderson has scored for Canada! 
So I was in my early 20s. I was in a in a radio station newsroom in Calgary. I was working at uh, our Calgary Chorus radio station, which uh, was then CHQR. Now it's News Talk 770. And there were four guys in the newsroom. The entire staff was in the boardroom watching this huge television. They, it was catered. Those of us working on the air, we were all in the newsroom, and four big guys, I was the smallest guy at about 220 pounds, jumping around and hugging each other. So last night, as I'm watching the hip in Kingston, I had the same feeling, that it was that iconic Canadian moment. It's all about Canada. It's all about being Canadian, and irony of ironies. As Gord Downey is battling brain cancer, so Paul Henderson as well has now battled brain cancer for a number of years. A great friend, Joe Warmington, is uh, on the line with me, Toronto Sun and Sun Media columnist and a good friend of, um, of the HEP. So, Joe, what were you feeling last night? Well, I think you've really described it well. Everything that you said, Roy, it's uh, incredible how you uh, nailed that. And uh, that's how I was feeling. I mean, basically, all the emotions were there. And, of course, just from the music point of view, too, there were some real iconic moments inside of that concert that I'll never forget. What, what really, when you look back a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, and you think about that concert, what's the first thing of the concert do you think you're going to remember? Well, obviously, I mean, a lot of people are talking about Prime Minister Trudeau there. That won't be what I remember, although that was a, a very big part of it. For me, it was at the very end of the show in that third encore, as you talked about that uncharted territory where he said, we don't know where this is going. You could see he was exhausted, and he would be exhausted without the cancer at that stage, uh, so you can imagine with it and all the treatments and, and at the end of a long tour. So he's there. And they're playing uh, ahead by a century, which is, you know, an interesting choice. And the song ends, and you see the band, and I don't know if it was planned or sort of planned, and then they just decided to do it, I don't know. But they all looked at each other, and they said, let's just keep jamming. And they kind of nodded for him to put the microphone on the, you know, the microphone stand, which you'll see him do if you watch it, and then just walk around the stage. And it wasn't to bask in it. It wasn't just for the fans. It was, it was partially that, to say goodbye and all that. But it was for, for Gord to soak it up. Yeah. And he did. You could see him soaking it up. And yeah. that's how he was able to write all those great songs. The lyrics that, you know, you and I could spend 10 years on and never get as well, you know, as strong as he did it. So that's what he was doing. And I just loved the, the way the band was. You couldn't even see them because of all the lights and that, but you could hear them. And just, just ferociously jamming away. Uh, very painful on the fingers and, and everything else, and they did it for like about two minutes as Gord did that, and I'll never ever forget that. No, and you know what, um, Joe, he he was giving to the fans, and they were giving to him. It was one of those mutual exchanges that I'm sure must have energized him so incredibly. And I got to thinking the people who themselves are struggling with their health, watching that would have been energized by just being part of it. There's so many things talked about with this tour, and I think you, once again, as you often do, have hit what this is really about, and that's the people that are battling or the people that are helping them battle or suffering from the, these kinds of things. And it's about what you can do, not what you can't do, but what may happen. It's what's happening right now and what you can do with it. 
and that was what Gord was trying to do, um, and he did it. And, you know, everybody can do that. And we've got people all over. You, you mentioned about people suffering with different kinds of diseases, including cancer and different kinds of ailments. And so, you know, there's a message there. Just because you've been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer doesn't mean you can't have the whole country not only watching, but, you know, you kind of have them in the palm of your hand, as he did last night. Yeah. You wrote a column yesterday about, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Is it Barry Godden? Barry Godin. Barry Godin. Originally from Peterborough. Who's, who's Gord Downey's neighbor in Kingston. He's his, his neighbor in Toronto. In was Richmond. in Toronto? Sorry. Yeah. So, so, so just for the people who didn't read your column, the one or two who didn't, just remind us about that relationship. It's a great story. I actually heard the story years before because I know Barry well. He used to be a, a magazine writer in Calgary. And he's a researcher and a really under-assuming kind of guy. He doesn't really stand out of the party. He just listens. And great guy. And, and one time I was talking to him about the hip because I, you know, I sort of know them. I've covered them and that kind of thing. I know all the players in the, the band. I'm not friends with them, but I've certainly covered them, and I really admire them all. And he mentioned how he used to... Uh, be the neighbor of, of Gord Downey, and he used to run with them and bike with them and just incredible stories. And he started telling me about the humanity of the guy, about the time that his cat went up the tree and Gord was the first guy out to go up the tree to to get that cat out of there, you know. And another time when he mentioned that he was having his birthday and he was sort of struggling with his 50th birthday, you know, that whole, you know, whatever that is that people go through. And the next day on his bike, there was a book there with a note from Gord. And it said, let's go for a run later. And, you know, a book that they were talking about, the author, Cormac McCarthy. So, you know, this is a, a really human guy. I call him a great Canadian neighbor. And I think that the, way, the reason I wrote that was because I think that's what we were watching. Part of the allure to the hip, to Gordon, and to the other guys in the band, is that they are our neighbors. They, they never went and built mansions. They don't have jets. When they tour, they get on a bus and they go... They don't have fancy, you know, show, all that kind of stuff. They just play for two and a half hours, and they're great. Yeah. And that's Canada right there. Exactly. And, I, you know, I, I feel the same way about all the Canadian acts. I mean, Nickelback on down, they take a, a lot of abuse, and they shouldn't. And the Bare Naked Ladies, it goes on and on and on. And these guys are right up there with them. And, um, you know, I think that the, the country spoke. Yeah. You know, Joe, um, I, I was just thinking that millions of Canadians were doing what you were doing, what I was doing. Uh, they were doing it, uh, some at the arena in, in Kingston, some at special venues, some at house parties, some alone in their homes, all connected to the same man, the same band, and the music which made Canadians of more than one generation say, that's ours, eh? That's ours. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, <laughs> you're listening to this, these lyrics, and, you know, after all these years of being a fan, I first heard of them from my sister, who was at the right age at uh, university, back about, you know, 27, 30 years ago, whatever. And then I got hooked on it, and I was thinking about the lyrics. I still don't understand most of the lyrics all these years later, but I know them, and it, it's just, uh, I don't know. You're right, it's goosebumps, and interestingly, you picked the Foster Hubert moment, because I was only probably eight years old or nine years old. I know that you were around a little longer than me, Roy, in this game, but <laughs> anyway, that was one that we'll never forget, and uh, this is right up there with that. Let's play it again, 1972. Anderson made a wild stab for Spell. Here's another shot, fight by the Storm! Anderson! And Storm to Canada! A whole country went berserk. 
and and last night the whole country was attentive and and drawn into this. We all squeezed into this arena in Kingston. We were all including there with, the prime minister, including the prime minister. Hey, Joe, thank you so much uh, for taking the time and uh, always writing the, the stories that matter and writing them in a way that we all understand and we can identify with. It's so nice to write something positive, even though there's a, you know illness here. I felt it was a positive story. Yeah, it's a good story. Great story. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There was a tremendous amount of emotion last night in Kingston. And last month, I spoke with two brothers in British Columbia, Chris and Theo Moshermansky. And uh, Chris and Theo both attended the very first of the Conscious of the Man-Machine Poem Tour in Victoria, British Columbia. And uh, I wanted to get them back on the show so we could talk about last night and how that compared with the, I don't know if it's fair to say that, but how they would compare that with the first concert, the one that they attended. So, Chris, good to have you back with us. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, it's great to be back with you, and uh, thanks again for having us on your show. Yeah, Theo, good to talk to you as well, sir. Thank you. Thank you again for the invite. I really appreciate it. It's yeah. nice to be here. So which one of you guys drove like 600 kilometers to go to the Victoria concert? Actually, yeah, it's Chris here. It was 1,000 kilometers one yeah. way. It was uh, 2,000 kilometers round trip and uh, was a truly spectacular journey to uh, witness that first concert down in Victoria with, uh, with the band and, and uh, a full house there. So what was it that motivated you to make that kind of commitment to drive over 1,000 miles, 1,200 miles about, right? Is it, no, yeah. six, no, it's 1,200 kilometers. No, 2,000 2, kilometers, 1,200 miles. What was it that, right. that motivated you to make that kind of commitment and drive that far? Yeah, you know, uh, um, that's a very good question. Uh, I think for starters, uh, The Hip has been a very meaningful band for me way back, uh, going back to 1989 when I first uh, saw them in concert and had the joy of hearing the album Up to Here and recognizing their incredible talent and the way they could write about Canada and speak those uh, stories and bring them to life uh, for the Canadian experience. And then through the years, they just have continued to impress and, and wow putting out albums every couple of years that continue to follow in that first album's uh, stead and, and uh, set that rock and roll theme with uh, Canadiana sprinkled through and answering all those questions. You, know, you alluded to Pierre Burton's uh, comments. I think Gord answered those questions uh, with very deeply held answers, yet at the same time challenged us with more questions. And so uh, yeah. it seemed very fitting to, to, to journey along with the band in that sense to, uh, to see that very first show. So were you with friends last night, Chris, or were you in a, in a, at a venue where there were lots of people watching, or did you watch privately? Yeah, I was in Vanderhoof uh, with the Circle of Friends. There was about uh, 12 of us uh, met together in a local pub and uh, celebrated the concert together with both a dinner and, and kind of a private viewing. Uh, the pub was very generous in, in providing us a private room to watch the show, and I did open up the uh, invitation to anybody else in Vanderhoof who joined us, but it turned out to be just a, a small, uh, tight circle of friends who many are very very deeply held, tragically hip fans, and, and it was a, a very fitting way to celebrate uh, that last concert in Kingston for the Man Machine Poem Tour. What about um, uh, what about you, Theo? Where were you last night? Where did you watch? Uh, very similar for me. I was at uh, one of our local pubs here in Prince George. Uh, the owners have an upstairs uh, area, and uh, they opened it up to all of us hip fans, and uh, we had the place full. 
um, and uh, pretty much every TV was uh, on the, on that concert, and um, and the sound system was all tragically hip. It was a fantastic small little venue. Uh, many of us uh, were very very deeply uh, entrenched in uh, tragically hip uh, fandom, and uh, it was a great time. Um, we could sing along. Uh, we had a, we had a couple bevies and, and beers and, and whatnot. It was just fantastic evening. Amazing, isn't it, that you can get Canadians from one part of the country, from one end of the country to the other, to get together for something like, you know, like the, the concert, For everybody would say, I'm just going to set this time aside on Saturday night, because I'm not going to miss this. I want to see it because, and everybody had that because reason. Now, guys, how would you compare, when you watch, when you watch the concert on television last night with your friends, how would you compare that concert, and maybe it's not a fair question, um, but I'll ask it anyway. How would you compare it with the concert that you saw in Victoria, Chris? Yeah, it definitely was different. Um, the emotion and the electricity in the uh, Save on Foods arena in Victoria was something that uh, was out of this world and very hard to replicate in a smaller venue like a pub in Vanderhoof, British Columbia. Um, but it was uh, a very meaningful time to spend it with uh, some friends and, and uh, sing along and kind of reminisce of some of the concerts that we'd seen collectively, uh, some of the experiences that uh, some of my friends had met, uh, different ba- band members in the past, and uh, some of the meaningful things that the songs and the lyrics have, have touched uh, us as, as Canadians over the years. And uh, to have that, it was quite different. Um, but at the same time, to you know, watch the band in their hometown was, was just such a privilege, I think, for them to open up and allow that venue to be uh, uh, participated in all the Canadians across the country and around the world. So, Theo, I'll ask you what you're going to take away from uh, the last month or the last five to six weeks. You saw them in concert live in Victoria. You watched last night in Kingston. What do you take away for, for yourself for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, I, I think there's uh, one specific lyric that stands out in my mind. Uh, I feel fabulously rich to, to have been part of the, uh, the fan group uh, and to have uh, been following them all along. Um, I, I just feel that it's, it's uh, so amazing that our nation has come together to witness and to support and to, uh, to celebrate uh, you know all the the different uh, songs and albums and and experiences that, that tragically hip has brought okay. us all together on. Um, you know, for me, for the last uh, six weeks or so, it's been pretty much straight tragically hip. I think my family might be getting a little tired of <laughs> of hearing it, but uh, and and listening to me sing along. But I just can't help it. it it's so moving. It's it's so uh, so fitting for me, and it's so relaxing to. All right. To tune in and, and listen to those lyrics again, guys. Thank you, thank you so much for talking to us when you uh, when you attended the concert in Victoria. Thanks for joining us today. A very special uh, time for for all of us. Really was a special time for us last night, and a lot of memories will be held by Canadians from coast to coast for years to come. Chris, Theo, all the best, guys. All the best to you both. Thanks for thanks for letting us bring this full circle. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump had another uh, week where you would imagine or you would think that most conventional campaigns might implode. His campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, resigned. This was Friday, day before yesterday. And um, that had to do with some of the work that he has done with the 
government or former government in Ukraine and what he did register and didn't register. Anyway, he's gone. So there are new people in the Trump campaign. And normally, if you have this a series of shakeups, as Mr. Trump has had, um, and um, collisions, as it were, you would have a campaign self-destruct. And, and many of the, uh, the anchors on American television news networks, cable news networks, certainly are gleefully writing the obituary for Donald Trump. But then I just saw that there's one poll in the U.S. which has him ahead of Hillary Clinton. Uh, John Zogby is the uh, head of uh, John Zogby Strategies. He's one of the m- most respected and senior pollsters in the United States. And he's, uh, he's the author of We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes in 21st Century America. And you can, uh, you can get that at Amazon. And then you can also get it on uh, John Zogby's website, johnzogbystrategies.com. And uh, John writes a column headlined, Trump is definitely down and definitely not out. So, John, thank you for taking the time to come back on the show. And how far down is he? And how close to out is he? Well, you know, since I wrote that column, things have changed. Uh, you know, as you pointed out in your your opener, um, he had a very bad week um, last week, and, um, and 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 that was a series of actually pretty bad weeks. But this week, uh, with a new campaign manager, he seems to be listening and have found a new voice, um, and so. Uh, he seems to be back to consolidating some of the Republican base. Uh, but more importantly, uh, as far as the polls are concerned, last three or four polls that are out nationally uh, have had a very tight race, again, from the, uh, a five-point race uh, polled by CNN uh, to, as you pointed out, an L.A. Times poll that has him today leading by, uh, by two percentage points. Zogby poll has Hillary Clinton leading by two percentage points, but it's close right now. So why is that, given all of the things and the missteps that, that are attributed to Donald Trump? Why is it that uh, that he's either leading or very close to leading in national polls? Is it just a national distaste for Hillary Clinton and the Clinton brand? No, it's, it's a number of things. First of all, you, you have a, a core constituency in the country that, that feels... Uh, probably in, in some instances anyway, justifiably, that it has been losing ground, losing ground financially, uh, working for less than, than it was, um, fear, genuine fear of dropping out of the middle class or being dropped out of the middle class or at least having their children dropped out of the middle class, um, uh, who also uh, uh, really don't like what they see happening culturally and demographically uh, in, in their communities and who feel that uh, America is the superpower um, has suffered over the last eight years or so. And so that's the core constituency, a big part of it. And then, as you point out, there are people who just don't like Hillary Clinton, period. Um, you know, and, and the polls are not encouraging for her <laughs> a solid majority uh, say that they don't trust her. Solid majority uh, feel that she doesn't understand uh, them in the middle. She 
in November. All right, so we're having a little trouble with John's mobile phone. Um, yeah. We're just having a little bit of a techno issue with your phone, John. Oh, can you hear me okay? Now, now we're better, yes. Okay, sorry about that. Um, but anyway, there are some people who genuinely don't trust Hillary Clinton either. So is this really then still Donald Trump's campaign to win? In other words, if he stays on, if he, if he does um, discipline himself to deliver one message, stays on message, doesn't wander off, is it still his campaign to win? Is the Hillary Clinton brand so vulnerable? And perhaps I've heard, uh, for example, I've heard Sanders supporters within the Democratic ranks saying they would never vote for Hillary Clinton because Senator Sanders had the convention stolen from him or the nomination stolen from him. Is it, a, is it really still an election for Donald Trump to win as opposed to not to lose? Well, you know, I wouldn't... I. I wouldn't bet a lot of money on his winning, but let me just say he can win. Um, and what's the proof there? Well, no one thought that he was going to go this far and win the Republican nomination, right. and, and he did. And he's, he is down, uh, but less and less. And as I pointed out in, in my, my column in Forbes, no, he's not out. Right now, no matter what, the leads are uh, between Clinton and Trump, Mrs. Clinton is only polling, you know, 39, 40, 41 percent. Trump, you know, 36, 39, 40 percent. There's a whole lot of people who don't like either of them, who may even not vote or who may, in the history making, um, gesture, vote for the libertarian candidate or the green candidate. So we just don't know. A lot I mean, of variables. A lot of variables. A lot of variables. And, and we have a, the debates are starting in, uh, in a few weeks' time. How significant will the debates be, John? They'll be very significant because I will say this, Roy, no matter where you go and in, in the places you least suspect to, you hear buzz. People are talking about this. Um, and I'll tell you, mainly what I'm hearing is, well, I'll vote the lesser of two evils. I just haven't made up my mind which one that is. And so uh, the, the debates will be an opportunity for these two candidates to make their case before, who knows, 60, 70 million people this year, I bet. So uh, regardless of who eventually is the winner, Americans, significant numbers of Americans will be waking up on the morning of November the 9th holding their noses. Significant numbers will be holding their noses. Yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a lot of territory still... I don't know why I'm laughing. It's, it's not funny, but it, it, it's just strange. It's strange that we could go through a two-year cycle, an entire primary process, which to us in Canada seems so incredibly lengthy. I'm sure it seems lengthy to you in the United States as well. Um, but but, but uh, And arrive at two nominees, neither one particularly well-liked by the majority of the American people. It just seems strange. That's just politics, I guess. It's just politics. Yeah, it's, it's just politics. Um, but um, it's also, I, I think, um, the intersection of politics and celebrity culture now, too. And this is what you get. You know, you, you get a, a, a reality show host, um, and you get... Uh, a person who's been around forever, but uh, will will always have 
her name associated with scandal. No matter how she tries to rebrand herself, there is a whole list of things in her own right that uh, just seem to smell. Uh, I can't wait for November the 8th. Because I don't think it's going to be one of those elections where we'll have the networks uh, projecting a winner in the first 60 seconds after the polls close. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right now, it looks like it's going to be close. I, uh, in, in all honesty, and because it's my business, uh, my business also is, is to be careful. Right. Um, it's close. Right. And there are way too many people undecided. John, not because they're not paying attention. Yeah, they're yeah. undecided because they can't make up their mind. Yeah, and they really haven't been given a, a strong case by either. The people who are not sure haven't been given a strong enough case by either of the candidates to move them in that direction because they're reluctant to move in either direction, as it were. John, they thank don't you. Don't like either of them. Don't like either of them. John, thank you so much for the time. I look forward to our next conversation. Always, uh, Roy. Look forward to it. Take care. Bye, bye, John Zogby. Zogby Analytics, the author of We Are Many. We are um, one neo-tribes in 21st century America. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, The federal government of Canada has decided, that uh, has announced, that it's going to open an office for de-radicalizing of individuals like Aaron Driver. So the question is, what are the chances of success for such an office? It's been tried in other countries and without any real measurable success in most cases, particularly when governments involve themselves. I mean, where's the credibility? If a government becomes engaged in de-radicalizing, the radicalized person is not going to be paying that close attention. That seems to be just sort of common sense, deductive reasoning. And uh, where do you begin with this kind of effort in order to gain any credibility with the people you're trying to de-radicalize? Is the focus going to be exclusively on radicalizing that's done by ISIS and al-Qaeda, or will the office also focus on other individuals or groups who attempt to radicalize? Scott Newark uh, joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You know Scott, been on this, we've worked together on air for 25 years. Uh, You know Scott primarily as a former Crown Attorney in Alberta and uh, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. But remember, following 9-11, he was named Ontario's Special Security Advisor and authored the province's Perimeter Security Strategy. He also served as Director of Operations for the Washington, D.C. Investigative Project on Terrorism and served as Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety in Canada and Vice Chair of Operations for the National Security Group. Almost exactly a year ago, Scott wrote a detailed article titled The New Reality, Fighting Terrorism by Preventing Domestic Radicalization. He did that for Inside Policy. So, Scott, um, just the fundamental idea of an office to be opened and operated by the federal government of Canada to create a de-radicalizing reality. Sounds good. Yeah, it but, does. Um, I think your uh, your points are well taken, and the, the very first one I'd start with is that it should not be confined to de-radicalization, which means it's after the fact. It should also be uh, it should also include counter-radicalization, which is the as you referred to. It's what I was talking about in that article because <clears throat> I always remember Roy after um, the uh, the Toronto terrorist uh, uh, incidents. Uh, very shortly afterwards, one of the um, uh, the guys that was arrested, his father said, quote, they are stealing our kids. 
And it struck me that what we needed to do was to pay more attention to who they are. And that's why you, anything like this, I think, needs to include a counter-radicalization strategy, which is where we start to go after who the they are to make sure that those entities and forces aren't out there to attempt to radicalize individuals and take them into the next stages of facilitation and helping with travel and everything else. We don't need to wait till after the fact where somebody has been reported as being radicalized. We actually want to, and this, you know, this is what an intelligence-based approach is, is you identify what the potential threat is. You don't wait till after the fact when it's actually taken place. And that's going to uh, it's going to be complex, as is the uh, the de-radicalization, uh, but it's ne- absolutely necessary, in my opinion. And if I was to pick a single area, I think, and probably in large measure because of you know political correctness, given the nature of what's the motivating factor for these guys, uh, we haven't really done a very good job. Uh, that's been a, that was really bluntly identified by the Senate's National Security Committee. Uh, about 18 months ago when they were holding hearings into national security issues and they were trying to get us... This is where the information came out, you may remember, about how many uh, Canadians had gone overseas to fight uh, in uh, Islamic Jihad and how many were back. That's where all that information came from. And it points out that this is an extremely complex problem we're facing. And by the way, it's been going on in the sense of the presence of the radicalizers the Islamists, that, that is the, uh, the Islamic extremism, who are here through foreign funding of mosques and learning centers, links into groups uh, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood, who have an open um, ideology and strategy of subverting from within. So the, the first step for me is to make sure that anybody, whether it's this office or it's this office making sure that the other agencies of government you know, um, put aside the political correctness and start to get at who they are so we can prevent the radicalization in the first place. Well, the first question has to be, of course, who is the problem? Who's creating the problem? And and then what do we do to, to as you point out, counter the uh, the problem that's being created? And and what I see coming out of Ottawa, and it's it's a reaction to the Aaron Driver's story, clearly, yeah. and others that have preceded it, but clearly it's a re- reaction to the Aaron Driver's story, I just don't see them prepared. I don't see anything in the way of any substantive detail. I don't see anyone. No, they say they have a short list of people they're considering. Fair enough. But give us an idea of who these people may be or give us an idea specifically of what it is you're going to what you're going to do. It's just too open ended at this point. And I just I just see another government bureaucracy that's going to be ultimately massaged by government to the um, the objective being to create a some some useful news releases at the end of the process. That'll be the real question, I think. I, and I, I don't entirely disagree with your cynicism, although I think actually uh, Ralph Goodale, as the Minister of Public Safety, has been pretty pragmatic. He has. And, and I'll, so I'll give him that. Shown yeah. an inclination towards... But he's not the Prime Minister. No, he's not. No, he's not. Uh, but he is uh, seemingly somebody that the Prime Minister uh, listens to. Um, and you're absolutely correct about, uh, number one, what the mandate of the office is. And, you know, it's funny. Well, I say this in particular um, from my background with the, uh, the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. As, you can, uh, as you'll remember, uh, myself and Sharon Rosenfeld were appointed by Order and Council appointment back in, I guess it would have been like 1998, mm-hmm. in effect to improve victim services. And so we were like what this kind of an office would be, especially set-up office, 
uh, with a uh, cabinet uh, appointment, it meant that we reported directly to the minister, which turned out to be a very, very, I'd love to take credit for it, but it was an accident. Uh, it turned out to be probably the most effective part, because it meant that we worked with the most senior officials, but we didn't work for them. And what happened to you when you started to be, to prove yourself to be successful? Well, things worked out. Uh, what know, did they do to well, you? Actually. They shut you down. Well, it was a different government. There was an election. You know, and that happens. Governments, you know, when they're elected, they have the right to choose what to do. But we managed to get a whole lot of stuff done from 1998 to about... Uh, no, I get that, Scott. But you know what? There are issues that have to... That just They, they transcend political philosophy. They, 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 they matter, and it shouldn't matter who's in power because the issue matters. And what you were doing in the Office for Victims of Crime in the province of Ontario was proving to be successful, too successful for some politicians, and so they withdrew their support. Well, that's just my that's, assessment. That's why it. I think it's important that there is, number one, a, a pretty clear mandate as to what the... Uh, the authority of this office is. And I would also build in what is, in effect, a reporting mechanism. You're not going to be able to, because I don't think the last thing you want, in my opinion, on this kind of a subject, you really don't want an office in Ottawa, you know, running all of the uh, counter-radicalization or de-radicalization services. They're going to have to, you know, identify who the groups are locally. This is going to have to be a local effort. There's an excellent article in the uh, Toronto Star today written by Michelle Shepard, who is describing there's two of these programs underway, right, kind of programs underway right now, one in Montreal and one in Calgary, which I'd highly recommend people, if you're interested in this, uh, go online and get the, have a look at the article. They're going to, I think the office will have a role to play in that and to making sure that those kinds of resources are actually available. Um, but it's it's not going to be an easy subject because you're dealing with, you know, the, the ideology motivator here, of course, is rooted in religion. And, you know, in our society, we cherish the freedom of religion. But unfortunately, the bad guys are using that to attempt to cause us harm. And so we're well, going to have a... to recognize and use, I think, what are the local assets from, let's face it, you know, the, the, the Muslims who moved here to get away from this kind of autocratic thuggery and all of a sudden are finding this extremism you know in their own uh, communities it's not going to be do, easy, do they it does need to be done do they know how i mean is there a successful formula for de-radicalizing to take place whether it's whether it's religious based or whether it's political based because there's some some pretty dangerous people who are just running around espousing political yeah. philosophies and, and, and threatening based on that, too. Well, if you, I think, you know, probably every country in the world will tell you that they have wonderful, successful programs. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, the, uh, there is one in particular that has been uh, uh, commented on that is um, uh, in uh, Europe. It's actually out of uh, Denmark, I believe. Uh, that's the one that the uh, Calgary uh, Police Service have uh, modeled theirs on. Um, <clears throat> you know, but it's, uh, I remember I did some work in Trinidad and Tobago and the, who are having problems with this now. And part of the big issue there was about the radicalization that took place in prisons. Uh, that is a big, big issue. Which is an issue United in this country, too. It is in this country as well, too. And see, that, that's the point, is we're going to have to recognize, you know, candidly, the nature of the threat that we are facing and see where it manifests itself so that we can try to get resources into place to prevent it from happening in the first place. But again, the, the person, the, the, the whoever, and I'm going to have to take a break here, but yeah. who, whoever runs this office, whoever staffs the office, 
whoever operates the program is going to have to have credibility in the greater community. It can't be a bunch of politicians or bureaucrats who are beholden nominally to the politicians waiting to write news releases. No, I agree, but they're going to have to also have credibility, as you say, not only with the local Muslim populations, but also with the security agencies who recognize that the, uh, the end goal here, as you say, is not to issue a press release, it's to actually make a difference. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You know, there's a lot of criticism of media. And a lot of it is earned, duly earned. But then there are journalists and there are people in media who take very seriously what they do. And they will not leave the cliched and proverbial stone unturned to get at the truth. And if you're obfuscating or you're blocking the truth, they're going to go around you, over you, under you, or through you. And Sue Ann Levy is one of those true investigative journalists. She's a Toronto Sun and Sun Media investigative journalist, and she has a new book, which is going to be on, uh, available on Tuesday, Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. And uh, I've always, you know, I have to say this first of all, I've, I've always been a big fan, Sue Ann, and I always will be a big fan. And I've been reading your book. I got it yesterday. I haven't finished it, but I've been reading it. Uh, I've read a lot of it. I, I just, I love what you're doing. I love what you've done. Congratulations on the book and on a great career. Oh, thank you so much, Roy. Um, it, it's truly a labor of love. It took me three years to get all of this together. And, uh, you know, and uh, I'm very proud of, of what I've done. And uh, I think if you had to ask me again if I would do it while I'm working full time, I might shake my head. But uh, I'm very proud of it. I think of you'd do it again. Yeah, you think I so? think you'd do it again. Yeah. I do. It's in your blood. <laughs> well, I am a bit of a workaholic, and I do talk about that in the book. But um, aside from that, I'm extremely passionate about what I do. And I have to say, after all these years, 26 years at the Sun, I still absolutely love doing what I do and digging to get the truth. So, so the, the, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the title of a book. To, to me, the title speaks a lot about what the author and I know there are people who work on titles with authors. Yeah. But ultimately, the title does speak a great deal to me about what the author is trying to say or will say in the book. So your book is Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. That's yeah. a mouthful. Yes, and that Random House came up with the title, but as soon as they actually presented it to me, I thought it was just my first reaction was, oh, my God, it is a mouthful, but it is funny, and it just perfectly... Um, captures what I'm trying to say in the book, as you say. Uh, I grew up being an underdog. I lived in the closet for 20 years. Uh, I was assaulted twice, first time left virtually for dead. And I dealt with the trauma for many, many, many years. And I never felt that I had a voice. I certainly didn't feel I had a voice growing up, and certainly while I was living in the closet. And when I guess I found myself and uh, helped to tackle my demons, I decided that I was going to become a voice for others. In other words, a champion for the underdog. And so that speaks to the underdog part. And the muckraker, of course, is the fact that I won't, like you said in the intro, 
I uh, like to think that I never stop digging until I do get to the truth. And it just absolutely drives me crazy when I hear about waste, mismanagement, and corruption in, in politics. Imagine that. Imagine waste, mismanagement, and corruption. <laughs> well, it's so pervasive. Who would have thought? Where, where do we begin, Roy? Who would have so thought? Pervasive. Yes. Sue Ann, one of the, the recurring themes, and you, start, you wrote a column today, um, and it, you start your book about talking about you coming out as gay. And mm-hmm. you did that in your son column on Pride Day 2007. Right. Your right reaction was 99% positive. Was that the watershed moment in, in your life personally and professionally? Uh, yeah. I know it's you've done a lot of investigative journalism before that, but... Yeah. Well, I think there were several watershed moments. I mean, I talk very openly in the book about going um, to see somebody about tackling my demons. And um, I was at City Hall at that point, and I suppose very vulnerable, but... Uh, it was uh, a couple of years of, you know, intense looking inside and dealing with the demons, and one of them, of course, was living in the closet. And I think, you know, thanks to my uh, magnificent wife, um, Denise Alexander, um, she was the one who encouraged me uh, back in 2007 to write this column, um, and mostly not because I, as I say in the piece today, I didn't want pity, I didn't want praise, but I wanted people to know that um, I had struggled with this for so many years. I wanted to be inspirational, and I also wanted people to know that you can be right of center, and you can be gay, and you can um, be a fiscal conservative, and you can be gay. But you're a bad lesbian. Well, according to Carl Ray, I am. Yeah, and, and, and I read that. Yes, and he, and I think when you ask about watershed moment, I think when I, I did do it, and believe me, I didn't sleep all weekend after I'd written the column, knowing that it was going to appear, um, and not to mention the many years that I wrestled with uh, living in the closet. Uh, I think the left response or lack of response uh, to my coming out was predictable. But it was, it was very sad because it actually reinforced everything I had thought, or actually when you say watershed moment, everything I wondered about them, whether they were truly compassionate and tolerant, or was it only uh, to those that you know, sung the same tune. And I certainly found that out very quickly when I came out. And as I say in the excerpt today, two years later when I married Denise. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So when I have 10 questions, we have 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, Rob Ford, talk to us about the mayor who was the favorite target of the left, not only in Toronto, not only in Canada, but rapidly became in the United States. In the States. Well, I'll tell you what I thought of Rob Ford. First of all, I identified with him because I was bullied when I was young, and uh, I immediately saw... I knew Rob Ford for 13 years. I immediately saw uh, in the chapter I write about Rob Ford, well, early on in his tenure as counselor, 2002, how he was becoming the favorite target of the left at City Hall. And I start with, I talk about the fact that when he tried to save a few shekels at City Hall, 
you know, by cutting plant watering and cutting some of the plant watering being 78,000. Uh, counselors couldn't water their own plants, so they were spending 78000 And how he got up and he tried to save shekels on their, you know, their lunches and the things that they, the, the frills, you know. Right. I always say if you follow the pennies, the dollars will follow. Exactly. And I saw how he was bullied and how they um, treated him right from the time in 2002. You know, and they laughed at him, they joked, they vilified him. Um, he wasn't articulate, uh, he was sweaty, he was uh, overweight. And let me tell you, some of the most overweight counselors on council, including Howard Moscow, loved to make him their target. Um, and these are all the troffers, Howard Moscow never avoiding a free buffet, you know, at City Hall. I used to see him do so. Uh, rush up to the buffet, I should say. So, I mean, it was highly hypocritical. They savaged him. He was their favorite punching bag um, from the time he became a counselor. And I watched this over the years, and it drove me crazy. And yet, you know, the people loyal to Rob Ford stayed loyal to Rob Ford. Because, because they, he was, he, he practiced what he preached. It was a genuine he article. Money. He, uh, he, he uh, met taxpayers and constituents one-on-one in their own homes and in coffee shops. He wasn't afraid to roll up his sleeves and go into Toronto Community Housing. He represents the antithesis of arrogant City Hall, and I respected him for that. I did not uh, condone uh, or sanction uh, his uh, crack cocaine use. I didn't apologize for that. I never did. But I think the way he was treated... A lack of empathy, the way he was vilified, vilified, I say in my chapter that Toronto, the left and the media and the leftists and the advocates sunk to a new low uh, during his tenure in office. Now, in Underdog, you also write about the relationship between school board trustees and bureaucrats they nominally oversee. And that's where Kathleen Wynne, the Premier of Ontario, got her political feet wet, as you write. Yes. Um, and uh, it's, it's just like um, the entry into politics is being a trustee on school boards. And that's where, you know, of course, Kathleen Wynne was a Toronto school trustee. She was a member of the parent network, and then she moved up the ranks to become an MPP, Minister of Education, and look at, lo and behold, she's a premier. And she's no different, I might say, than she was as a trustee. She didn't respect taxpayers. She didn't respect uh, spending or, you know, overspending at, at the school board. She pushed for overspending. And what you see is what you get yeah. today. And I say that trustees largely are propped up by unions, and most of them on the school board, two-thirds of them now, are um, union candidates. The unions have put money in to elect these trustees, and I dare say taxpayers don't have a chance. You know, if nobody applies the brakes, they're never going to slow down. No, and it's very difficult. And then what happens is that uh, the trusteeship is the entry point into politics, and there are many who then can proceed to City Hall. Olivia Chow, Paula Fletcher, Janet Davis, Pam McConnell. They were all school trustees. Howard Moscow. Uh, I, 
all those people who are uh, either former councillors or are now wasting tons of money at City Hall and do not care one bit about taxpayers or their constituents, for that matter. Let me stay in the school environment for a moment and talk to you and ask you to comment, please, or share with us the issue of bullying. Now, you you yes. wrote about that for The Sun and in yeah. your book. School right. boards, I've often, I've almost been of the view that school boards write and enact zero-tolerance uh, policies a zero tolerance to bullying policies, Sue Ann, and then they hide behind those policies when they do nothing to really curb bullying. And you wrote about 14-year-old Melissa Black. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting, Roy, because I covered the education beat back in the 90s, and then I came back to it after 20 years in more of an investigative capacity, which is when I wrote about Melissa Black, who was bullied um, in her Scarborough school for three years, and nearly the young lady... Uh, you know, wanted to take her life over it, and the principal, the school trustee, the superintendent, none of them handled it properly at all until basically I got into the mix um, and wrote and exposed them. So 20 years later, uh, bullying was a real issue back in the 90s. They enacted all these policies, zero tolerance, expulsions, this, that, and the other thing, and now it's basically hit and miss. It depends on the school. It depends on the principal. There are still many principals in the Toronto system and in the Catholic system who don't want to admit that they have a problem, do not want to admit that they have a violence problem, and because they figure that that will affect the perception of their school, which is really sad and and actually disgraceful. Uh, Being um, an investigative journalist and doing what you do uh, is always, can be a dangerous profession. (laughs) And, and And it, you were... As you said, you, you were physically attacked twice. Tell us about that. Well, um, the, and it, it's made me a lot tougher. I think I say in the book that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, the first was when I was 21. I was at Carleton University. Um, I was trying to sublet my apartment. A young a, a, a man answered an ad. It was on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I didn't think to have anyone with me. I was seeing a very nice young man at the time. Didn't think to have him with me. This guy came armed with a lead pipe, and uh, when he was certain that I was absolutely alone, he um, attacked me from behind and basically beat me up and then tried to strangle me. And I think what scared him off is that he thought that he had killed me. Um, That was when I was 21 in Ottawa, who would have thought in 1978 that you have to worry about those sort of things fast forward to 2005 um, I am trying to buy a bench from a store up the street from my condo the young man who sold it to me came after work to put it together and proceeded to expose himself in my condo and uh, wanted to sexually assault me but because of the previous experience I was able to talk him down never got my day in court the first time, but I did get this young man to court. He pled guilty he, to sexual assault, was listed on the sex offenders re- registry. I had to fight the system to get him through court. And uh, I have to say that after I went to court and he, was, he pled guilty and, and gave his apology, his mother came up to me after the, the court proceeding was over and thanked me. Um, and actually thanked me and apologized. Well... That that was that was good. Um, 
for you to have experienced what you what you did experience, particularly in that first assault, horrifying to read. Um, Stephen Harper. Yes. Uh, your blunt assessment of Stephen Harper declaring that a Muslim woman should not wear a veil yes. during swearing of the oath of citizenship. Arguably, that was the hinge on which the 2015 uh, election, if I can use the word, pivoted. I would say Emotionally. yes, and largely. I mean, I think basically if you ask people today, they'll say, I just grew tired of them. And then you say, well, why did you grow tired of them? I even had a friend say that to me yesterday. I grew tired of them. I'm not sure why people grew tired of them. I thought he had done some tremendous things with the economy. I certainly backed him in terms of his support for Israel, and he certainly had a conscience when it came to Israel. And, you know, and so I'm not so sure. I think in our, um, I guess in our psyche, we feel that after a certain amount of time, we've got to overthrow whomever is in power yeah. and put someone else in no matter what. Now, in terms of the, uh, the whole niqab debate, Yes, I think it certainly helped uh, drive him out of office. And this is why I respected him, because he actually stood up to this crazy nonsense of, you know, people coming to our country, and I have a whole chapter on pandering to Muslim BS, basically, uh, people coming to our country uh, from another land, seeking freedom and democracy, and then trying to impose their religious um, I guess, practices that harken back to the 15th century on us. It's crazy. You know, it's interesting, and I I have 45 seconds here. Uh, There was a woman in in France when they passed the law that said uh, no niqabs to be worn. Mm -hmm. There was a a Muslim woman in France who took the French government to court before the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Court of Human Rights sided with the French government— and said, yeah, you're right, the niqab can be outlawed, and the European Court of Human Rights ruling allows for no appeal. You know, and good for them, because I think political correctness has driven this crazy nonsense to the pendulum has swung so far to the politically correct side that we're afraid to say anything. We're afraid to speak up. What part of being a, a free country... Uh, speaks to allowing someone to wear something that goes back to 15th century. I have to stop you because of the clock, but there you go. Uh, The book is Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker, and it's Sue Ann Levy, investigative journalist with the Toronto Sun. I'm enjoying the read. I'm going to finish it tonight. Thank you. And lots of juicy juicies in there, I hope. You betcha. Thank you. Thanks, Sue Ann. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.